Hello, my name is Dr. April Armstrong, Vice Chair of Clinical Research, Associate Professor of Dermatology, Director of the Clinical Trials and Outcomes Research, and Director of the Psoriasis Program at the University of Colorado in Denver. I would like to welcome you to today's live and on-demand broadcast. Today's activity is titled, Coordinating Care Between Dermatologists and Rheumatologists to Improve Outcomes in Patients with Psoriatic Arthritis. This CME activity is brought to you by USF Health and CME Outfitters, best-in-class accredited providers of continuing education for clinicians around the world. Today's program is being streamed live and will be archived at www.cmeoutfitters.com. And I encourage you to share this resource with your colleagues or team members who are not able to join us today. I also encourage everyone to join in on our live Twitter conversation using the hashtag psoriaticarthritis. We'll be monitoring the Twitter feed and responding to your tweets as they come in. And don't forget to stay with us for our after the show segment when you're invited to call or email us with your questions or cases. Our goal is to ultimately help you improve the lives of your patients. So please submit your questions and feedback. And with that, welcome to our show. I look forward to today's program, and I am privileged to introduce my esteemed colleagues joining me today, Dr. David Borenstein. David is a clinical professor of medicine in the Division of Rheumatology at George Washington University Medical Center in Washington, DC. Welcome to the show, David. Thank you. And also joining us is Dr. Joel Galfand. Dr. Galfand is an Associate Professor of Dermatology, Medical Director of the Dermatology Clinical Studies Unit at the University of Pennsylvania, Paramount School of Medicine in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Welcome to the show. Joel. Thanks for having me here, April. Let me start by reviewing our learning objectives for our program today. First, we want clinicians to implement screening guidelines to ensure a minimum of 75% of patients with psoriasis are screened for psoriatic arthritis in the next three months. Second, apply professional treatment guidelines in more than 50% of patients with psoriatic arthritis in the next three months. And finally, we want to coordinate care and consult with rheumatologists for more than 50% of our patients with moderate or severe psoriatic arthritis in the next three months. So let's start with screening. David, can you begin us with a case, uh, for example, a patient that has been referred to you recently? Sure. This is uh, an example of a typical patient who comes to me for consultation regarding joint troubles. And this uh, Ms. W has 44 years old and she's had six years of psoriasis that has been characterized as moderate to severe as skin disease alone, and she's been treated with methotrexate 15 milligrams weekly, which is a typical dose. And now she comes in for joint pain, and specifically she has complaints that her fingers and toes are now painful and swollen. And this is a very common complaint that we have, that patients come with psoriasis and now have joint problems. And before we move on, I would like to ask our audience a question that I think may be interesting. Viewers, you will see the question on your screen. The question is, which of the following is not important to ask to screen for psoriatic arthritis? Is it A, have you experienced joint swelling? B, are your joints painful or tender? C, 
Do you have morning stiffness? Or D, have you noticed any nodules on your joints? Please provide your answer now. We will discuss the results shortly. Now, let's go back to Miss W that you just talked about, David. Um, if you could just tell us what's important in her presentation in terms of your assessment of her psoriatic arthritis. Well, clearly what's key here for a rheumatologist is the fact that she now complains of joint swelling and pain both in the fingers and toes. This certainly can be uh, compatible with psoriatic arthritis and with having had a history of psoriasis, that would be our first consideration, but may not be absolutely the case. So one act, uh, actually has to examine the patient, ask them the questions, and look at them to be sure that they, in fact, have that as a problem, but that's why they're coming to the rheumatologist. Now, there are different ways of classifying psoriatic arthritis. Uh, as far as diagnostic criteria are concerned, uh, those have been developed over time trying to differentiate basically rheumatoid arthritis from the very other, the many other kinds of arthritis that we uh, deal with of an inflammatory nature. So it was the group called seronegative rheumatoid arthritis. So who belonged in that group? Well, psoriasis patients certainly did when they had psoriatic arthritis. So this CASPAR classification criteria came up with those characteristics which help differentiate psoriatic arthritis from others, and it basically puts a significant amount of uh, emphasis on the history of psoriasis, whether it's current, historical, or family history, and that gets two points. Psoriatic nail dystrophy, nail changes, that they do not have rheumatoid factor, that they may have a sausage digit, which we'll see later as an example, a true swollen finger or toe, and the fact that they have, on x-ray, juxtaarticular new bone formation, periosteal changes. Those characteristics certainly are those of uh, psoriasis, and if you have three points, two for the first one, one for the others, if you come up with three, certainly that is suggestive of a diagnosis of psoriatic arthritis. Yeah, and that's what I'd be looking for in this patient. Does she have those kinds of characteristics? Mm -hmm. and, and I think CASPER criteria is certainly very helpful in terms of classifying PSA. And so just here, she probably already has two, three. So she, she has the diagnosis, at least from the standpoint of potentially having joint changes, and I would be looking to see if they have those characteristic changes that would give her that final point to, in fact, have the diagnosis. Great. Joel, can you tell us about how common is psoriatic arthritis among our psoriasis patients? Yeah, so this is a pretty common problem our patients with psoriasis will encounter uh, as they go through their journey with having cutaneous disease. Uh, the prevalence of psoriatic arthritis really depends on how bad their skin disease is. So for a lot of our patients who have you know, psoriasis on 10% or more of their body surface area, uh, their likelihood of developing psoriatic arthritis is around 30 to 40%, very high odds. Uh, but even for patients with very limited disease, just their elbows and knees, for example, or a little bit on their scalp, uh, their likelihood of developing psoriatic arthritis is still around 6 to 10 percent uh, frequency there. And that's an important thing to be aware of for our patients. It's important for our colleagues to know, though, that the correlation between disease activity in the skin and the joints is actually quite modest or weak. Uh, and so people who have very mild skin disease could have very severe psoriatic arthritis. And so we need to identify this disease in all of our patients who come in. And trying to identify this disease can be challenging. Uh, recent literature has come out uh, showing that even amongst uh, a 
experienced dermatologists who are, uh, know how to identify uh, psoriatic arthritis or have experience taking care of these patients. About a third of patients seen in these practices uh, will have psoriatic arthritis that can be diagnosed by a rheumatologist that hasn't been picked up under a routine uh, clinical care conditions. Yes, and I think um, all the epidemiologic data is ex extremely important, and I was wondering if you can sort of expand on that a little bit uh, with regards to both uh, more epidemiologic data that a dermatologist and a rheumatologist should know for psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. Yeah, well, I think that the main thing people need to know is it's a common disease overall. Uh, psoriasis affects about 8 to 9 million people in the United States, 125 million people worldwide. So this is a substantial public health burden. Um, it occurs equally in both sexes, um, although you know, when it comes to psoriatic arthritis, uh, sometimes uh, symmetric disease may be more common in women compared to men, for example. Uh, these diseases typically occur in young adults uh, to middle-aged uh, individuals, but psoriasis can occur at any age from birth uh, all the way to people's 90s and beyond. Uh, and same thing for psoriatic arthritis could occur in, uh, in young children as well, where it's often associated with more uh, significant things like uveitis, for example. Uh, and the main thing we need to be aware of, of course, is that uh, in most patients, uh, psoriatic arthritis will come either with the diagnosis of psoriasis or most commonly after the case of psoriasis develops. Uh, only a minority of patients, probably about 10 to 20 percent, have joint symptoms first and eventually uh, the diagnosis is clued in by skin de disease developing. But for most of our patients, uh, we dermatologists are front lines for detecting uh, this new diagnosis for patients. Great. Um, David, can you tell us a little bit about clinical phenotypes for psoriatic arthritis? Well, it would be great if there was only one form. Unfortunately, there isn't. It's psoriatic arthritis, but it does, in fact, come in different forms that can be part of the whole repertoire of changes that these patients may show. So that's why, once again, the rheumatologists can be helpful because they are aware of these changes. There's some people who come in that are quite confusing. They look like rheumatoid arthritis. They have symmetrical polyarthritis, and it takes close evaluation to say, yes, this is different than rheumatoid disease. Then there are individuals who have oligoasymmetrical disease. That is, they have one joint on one side of the body, a different joint on another, a finger or a PIP joint on one side and a knee on the other. And they only have a few joints, and very commonly, that's what you see. There are individuals with psoriatic arthritis who have essentially distal interphalangeal joint involvement exclusively, but there are others who have DIP involvement as part of their symmetrical polyarthritis. So once again, a little complicated. There are individuals who have axial disease. Those are individuals who have spondylitis. They have SI joint involvement or lumbar spine involvement. And different than ankylosing spondylitis, there can be skip areas. So it isn't contigu uh, contiguous. They actually have SI joint and may have involvement further up in the spine. And those individuals can have it independently or can be involved with the other forms of disease. And then finally, the one that we hope we don't see but still occurs on occasion is arthritis mutilans, which is basically a lytic process where, in fact, usually in the appendages, the bone is actually leached and you actually have telescoping of the digits because they become floppy. So that's arthritis mutilans, and those are the kinds of characteristics as far as joints are concerned that we see. Great. Joel, now we just heard from David about the different phenotypes of psoriatic arthritis. Are there cutaneous findings that we can look at that may 
possibly suggest that a person could develop psoriatic arthritis later on? Yeah, well, I think that uh, you mentioned earlier that certainly the prevalence of the disease, the likelihood of developing it increases with increasing body surface area skin involvement. So that's something to give us a clue. Uh, nail disease is a, is a sign of potential developing uh, psoriatic arthritis, especially in the DIP joints. Uh, the underlying thinking here is that this actually may be a sign of early anthocytis uh, that is affecting the nail bed and that inflammation is causing nail changes. So in patients with nail psoriasis, you really need to uh, be asking patients in particular about uh, their onset of joint disease. And then sort of basic things like family history are really important to consider here. Of all the complex genetic trait diseases uh, like inflammatory bowel disease, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, psoriasis, or even type 2 diabetes, psoriatic arthritis is one of the most heritable of all those conditions. And so we often will ask our patients, you know, do you have a family history of psoriasis? We should also ask them if they have a family history of psoriatic arthritis. Those are people who uh, we have to be a little more uh, mindful of watching. Great, great. So David, uh, what are some of the joint features that distinguishes um, psoriatic arthritis? Well, I have some examples coming up in the next couple slides of examples of what are changes that occur in the appendages, and some of them are joint, and some are really attachments of ligaments and tendons to joints or to bone that causes the disease. Here's a slide where we see a childhood uh, psoriatic patient, uh, certainly extensive disease, who may go on, end up having uh, dactylitis. Dactylitis is the sausage digit, which may be very large involvement of a single joint, which spreads up and down the appendage. It goes in fingers and toes, so that's why I take off uh, patient's shoes, so I can see whether their toes are, and a very memorable patient was one who had a toe twice the size of any other, and didn't mention it, and I happened to take off their shoes and pointed it out to him, and he basically said, I pay it no mind, because it's his toe, and he didn't think it could be any different. So you have to look, is my point. Then we also have arthritis mutilans, once again, where there is lytic changes in the bone itself, so you get floppy fingers, which we hope we don't see, but clearly is partly a destructive process of the bone it's, itself. The next slide shows what may end up being, as Joel mentioned, the cornerstone of the disease, and that is enthesitis. That is where the attachment of ligaments and bone, uh, ligament goes to bone, tendon goes to bone, and this may be a specialized structure where there are specific cells which are a greater risk of being stimulated to cause inflammation. So particular areas, primary ones, are certainly the Achilles tendons, as you see here, one normal on the left, one twice the size on the right, and this would be someone who has enthesitis and would be one who would be considered as having part of the spectrum of psoriatic arthritis. Great. So let's talk more about screening later, but first uh, I want to share with you the results from our polling question. So again, the question was, which of the following is not important to ask during screening for psoriatic arthritis? Uh, so we have uh, our results hot off the press from our audience here. Uh, so 1% of the you, you responded, A, have you experienced joint swelling? 17% of you responded with B, are your joints painful or tender? And 22% of you responded with, do you have morning joint stiffness? 
and 56% of you responded with D, have you noticed any nodules on your joints? So for this particular question, because we're asking which of the following is not important to ask uh, when screening for psoriatic arthritis, the correct answer would be D, have you noticed any nodules on your joints? David, any reflections on the results here from our audience? Well, I think what some are confusing here is the presence of rheumatoid nodules or distal interphalangeal nodules associated with osteoarthritis, which we wouldn't be as interested in this type of patient as the other aspects which truly are compatible with the inflammatory aspect of their disease and the fact that psoriatic patients do not classically have nodules as rheumatoid arthritis patients are. So we're trying to differentiate them there. Great. Joel, any thoughts? Yeah, well, I think it emphasizes the need that there's several questions we need to ask to identify inflammatory arthritis symptoms. You know, pain, stiffness in the morning, uh, and then better, getting better with activity. These are really the, the, the hallmarks of an inflammatory arthritis. Great. Uh, on the heels of that, uh, I'm going to ask Unintended. David. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Um, what are some of the questions do you think dermatologists should ask with regards to screening for psoriatic arthritis? Well, I know how busy uh, dermatologists are. I have a nephew who's a dermatologist, and he's pretty busy all the time, and he has lots to do with taking care of the skin. So if there is one thing I would ask dermatologists to do is to ask, do your joints hurt? If you have musculoskeletal pain, then the next question is, do you swell? Is it tender? Are you having prolonged morning stiffness when you get up? Do you get better as the day goes on? Uh, those kinds of things are clearly important. And if you want to find out if they have enthesitis, certainly uh, primary places in the feet, do they end up having foot pain? Is it because of plantar fasciitis? Do they have Achilles tendonitis? Those are really important. And certainly, I go on and do more. But if I had only one, it would be, do your joints hurt? And that is certainly a great place to start. Great. So we heard from Dr. Borenstein, do your joints hurt is very important if you could only ask one question, but hopefully you'll be able to ask a number of questions to really get closer at the assessment. Yes. So as a rheumatologist, David, how do you assess joints? And, and as you uh, have said earlier, derms, sometimes we may be a little time pressure in our visits. Um, what are one or two things that derms can do to assess the joints? Well, I think if you're looking at the skin and the joints underneath, you can see whether they look swollen to you. And I myself at times wonder whether the skin is swollen or is it the joint underneath that's swollen. And sometimes that can be very difficult to figure out. But that's certainly what I'm looking for. And not only the swelling, but is it tender? And if you push on these areas, patients very well will say, yes, that bothers me. It may not be quite as much as rheumatoid arthritis, but certainly is quite helpful. Do they, in fact, have a digit that looks twice as big as any other, like my patient I mentioned? They may not be paying attention to it, but just in case, oh yeah, there is. If you have an opportunity to look at psoriasis on the back and you get close to the sacroiliac joints or the lumbar spine, can you, in fact, feel along the spine and the SI joints to see, are they sensitive? Do they have pain with pressure? And those are some of the very general things that I would hope would be possible. That's certainly what the rheumatologist is doing. And if the dermatologist has the few minutes to do that, I certainly think that will only help in making that diagnosis more aware. Great. 
And Joel, are there laboratory tests that one could order, especially from a dermatologist's perspective, to screen for psoriatic arthritis? Yeah, well, I think that uh, when a patient comes to our clinic and they have skin disease and we ask them these questions that David went over and we find they have joint <laughs> symptoms that seem significant to the patient, uh, a lot of times I will think about initiating a little bit of a workup to understand which direction this patient may be going in. So first I think about inflammation. You know, is this an inflammatory arthritis? And there I like to get uh, sed rate and a C-reactive protein. Uh, now, we need to be aware of the fact that people with uh, PSA uh, can have active disease with normal measures of systemic inflammation. So if it's completely normal, uh, I'm not 100% reassured, but I feel a little better about the situation. If it's elevated, though, there are some studies suggesting that people who have elevated C-reactive proteins, for example, are more likely to go on to have progressive psoriatic arthritis, multiple joints going from, say, oligoarthritis to, to uh, polyarthritis uh, or have uh, joint damage. And then along the spectrum of joint damage, if a patient has findings of joint damage on their x-rays, for example, so they have a lot of hand and foot symptoms, I may get simple x-rays of those areas to look for evidence of joint damage. Because if it's there, these are people I want to make sure get to see rheumatologists to make sure appropriate therapies can be started and we can try and halt or slow the progression of the disease. Um, and then also sometimes you want to try and distinguish uh, in advance when they're getting ready for their rheumatologic visit. Uh, you know, could this be more rheumatoid arthritis or another uh, form of arthritis? So I may get a, a CCP antibody test or rheumatoid factor and even an ANA. Uh, and we know that psoriatic arthritis is a, to some extent a diagnosis of exclusion. You know, we'd expect those things to be basically negative in most patients uh, with PSA. And this way when my patient's ready to see my rheumatologist, uh, they're uh, as ready as possible to get the most out of that visit. Great. And we appreciate that information. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And now, David, uh, in terms of psoriatic arthritis, I think a lot of clinicians may be confused uh, with regards to how to distinguish psoriatic arthritis from other types of joint disorders. Do you have any tips on that? Yes, and I think we're going to go over the next two slides and the tables. And for those who may not have their rheumatologist accessible very quickly, I hope this these two tables will allow people to at least think about how the diseases are similar or different. Psoriatic arthritis, you'll see, has certain characteristics. The others that we'll be talking about, that is rheumatoid arthritis, inflammatory osteoarthritis, and gout, do have certain inflammatory components, at least some, but do have different characteristics. So the distal interphalangeal joint involvement that we described is common in inflammatory OA and in PSA, but not really in OA, in uh, RA, or in gout. That, those are joints that aren't frequently involved. Dactylitis can occur in gout and in psoriatic arthritis, but not RA or OA. Enthesitis, is, as I described with the Achilles tendon, characteristic of psoriatic, but not really the others. Back involvement, Spondylitis occurs in PSA, but believe it or not, rheumatoid arthritis does not have lumbar spine involvement. Cervical spine involvement occurs, but not, not the lumbar spine. Nail involvement, that's clearly psoriasis, not the other uh, groups. And when it comes to erythema, redness around the joint, clearly gout is the next one up other than psoriatic arthritis, but those two have erythema Redness sometimes occurs in RA, but not frequently. It's more that it looks swollen. When it comes to symmetry, as I described, most commonly psoriatic arthritis is, is asymmetric. Rheumatoid arthritis is 
symmetrical disease. Gout will affect one joint usually, but there is polyarthritis associated with gout. Tenderness, sometimes mild in, in psoriatic disease and inflammatory OA, it's more with rheumatoid disease. Rheumatoid factor, RA, not the others. Nodules, RA, not the others. Osteopenia is really with periarticular osteopenias and RA and not the others. So these are two tables. If you put them up, you can sort of see where do the patients sort of fit, and you can tell that there are differences between RA and psoriatic arthritis. So I do think this, these pieces of information can help differentiate, differentiate among these various types. Great. Well, Joel, as you can obviously see, our rheumatology colleagues are really a wealth of information. Um, so when we send our psoriasis patients to the rheumatologist, what kind of questions should the patients ask our rheumatologists? Yeah, so I think that uh, for our patients, it's about us helping to understand that this is a fundamentally you know, separate part of their disease in terms of how it behaves. So for psoriasis of the skin, we sort of almost think of it as an elective disease to treat. If the patient's not bothered by a disease or doesn't have much symptoms and they don't want to go on therapy, we say, okay, well, it's best we know it doesn't get worse if you don't treat it. With psoriatic arthritis, it's a different situation. If the patient has uh, you know, active disease, active inflammatory disease, there's a risk that can progress without treatment and lead to permanent disability that is then irreversible. So the first thing I talk to my patients about is you know, get a sense from the rheumatologist about how serious a case of psoriatic arthritis do you have? Is it something that could just be controlled with symptom management, such as uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories? Or is your disease and that's going to be more likely to progress and therefore requires uh, disease-modifying agents? Um, a lot of times you don't really think about the uh, holistic approach to uh, taking care of our patients, but physical therapy could be very useful for our patients and talking to them about uh, that as being an aspect of what could uh, help them feel better uh, with their joint disease. And then I think a key aspect of it is really ultimately working as a team with the patient and our colleagues in rheumatology and trying to get a better sense of, well, who will be steering the ship in this, in this particular case? Uh, in my practice, if a skin disease is quite severe and a joint disease is more mild, I may be the one initiating systemic therapy and monitoring it. If the joint disease is a more dominating picture and the skin disease is more mild, uh, then maybe the rheumatologist may be uh, initiating therapy and monitoring those situations. But it's important for the patient to know uh, who is a doctor to go to for their refills, who's a doctor in charge of making sure that uh, the I's are being dotted, the T's are being crossed. Yes, absolutely. I think coordinating the care is, is very important, especially with our psoriasis patients who have multiple comorbidities. Let's now shift our discussion to treatment and guidelines. I would like to ask the audience another question. You will see the question on your screen. What is important to consider before making a treatment selection for Ms. W? Is it A, psoriatic arthritis phenotype, B, patient compliance, C, treatment guidelines, D, drug risk profile, or E, all of the above? Please provide your answer now and we'll discuss the results shortly. Now, David, let's talk about treatment guidelines. And certainly they could be important in terms of uh, guiding our clinicians regarding how to uh, approach our patients with psoriatic arthritis. So I was wondering if you can just talk about treatment guidelines in general for PSA and then perhaps focusing on the ULAR guidelines that have been published. Sure. Well, I, I want to start out the discussion by saying uh, guidelines are suggestions. They are not set in stone. They're helpful thoughts along the way of thinking about the decisions that one needs to make as far as the patient's disease, their severity, 
comorbidities, all those things together. So that's the way I want to start this out. And that they are not mutually exclusive. That is, you may be using one, one uh, drug at one point, you may add another to it, depending. So it, it's fluid to a certain degree. As rheumatologists, we certainly start with our non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. As well as all these other drugs are, they don't really deal with pain. And if you're going to use one that works with for pain associated with the illness, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs certainly do work on the symptoms of the disorder and certainly can be quite helpful. As we saw with the patient described here, they were already on a disease-modifying drug for their skin disease, and that certainly is also a decision in regard to joint disease. So if you have a patient who has more significant skin or certainly starting out with joint problems, the use of a disease-modifying drug such as methotrexate, sulfasalazine, and lufunamide certainly is quite worthwhile. And this needs to be considered in the setting of their psoriasis and some people uh, believe that methotrexate may work better with skin. We can certainly discuss whether that to be the case. I think one of the issues that has always been concerning to rheumatologists is has adequate doses of methotrexate been used and whether the oral route is adequate to get adequate levels and that subcutaneous forms of the medicine may be needed to get adequate levels. So I still think we need a little bit more data to decide whether methotrexate is truly as good or as bad as some people think at this time. For individuals who have joint disease that is associated with swelling or infusion. That is when uh, injections can be quite helpful in those individuals. When those are not working, when a local in uh, injection is not working, and we try to stay away from systemic steroids as best as possible, because I want to stay friendly with my dermatology colleagues, because if they stop the steroids, I know that their skin disease can get worse. So we're hesitant in doing that. When those are not working, individuals are still symptomatic, then one needs to think about the next role of therapy, and that could be the biologic agents. And those biologic agents would include etanercept, adalimumab, infliximab, sertazolizumab, uh, galibumab, uh, erstikinumab. So we have, we used to kinumab. So we have a variety of these biologic agents that could be used in addition to DMARTs that could be quite helpful. If an individual has dactylitis or significant enthesitis, there's evidence to suggest that one goes to those, that is the biologic agents, sooner than later. If an individual has spondylitis, that is SI joint involvement or involvement of the lumbar spine, non-steroidal is not working those individuals are also ones where TNF therapy would be initiated sooner. For those individuals who do not respond to one TNF, that does not mean that they will not respond to another. And it always depends upon what you feel comfortable with in regard to giving a trial as to how long one would stay on that therapy. But if it's not uh, responsive, if the patient is not responsive, then switching to a different TNF certainly is important. And of course, in the background of all of this, what are the comorbidities of the patient? What are the safety concerns? 
what kind of uh, drug would be most appropriate for that individual. So all those factors need to be put together, even though I did them in sequence, those factors need to be put together to decide what in fact will be the best regimen for that patient, Ms. W, who's sitting in front of you in your office. Great. Um, Joel, we just heard from David, a uh, very nice review of the ULAR guidelines, very importantly putting some of the, context, uh, some of the points in context of the individual patient. Um, can you walk us through the GRAPA guidelines for treating psoriatic arthritis? Yeah, so GRAPA is an interesting organization. It's really a group of uh, both dermatologists and rheumatologists interested in this disease, as well as some other subspecialists uh, who collaborate in this area. Um, and uh, you know, I think, as David mentioned, these guidelines still are really more suggestions. They're not uh, supposed to be prescriptive. This is what you have to do, but helping us uh, guide along our management of our patients. And the other thing that's been said about guidelines is that they should really come with expiration dates. Uh, so our GRAPA guidelines come from 2009. Uh, they're being updated as we speak, but there's been massive progress since they first came out. I think some of the major pearls in there for our clinicians is being aware of the fact that uh, psoriatic arthritis is a diverse disease. Uh, patients can have multiple different presentations. Even within, within one patient, they may have symmetric disease and dactylitis or uh, emphasize maybe their primary uh, component of the disease. And so the GRAPA guidelines uh, help us understand that based on the presentation of the joint disease, we may want to go in one direction or the other. So the patient who has dactylitis or axial disease or emphysitis as a primary component of what's going on, uh, these are patients who are going to do better on biologics than traditional oral medications like methotrexate, for example. The other thing to think about uh, is how our, our thinking about treatment of psoriasis changed over the time. As we have more therapies available, which are very well tolerated and probably have better long-term safety profiles or don't have organ damage risks with cumulative toxicity, uh, we don't really think of, it, of stepwise management. We don't think of saying, well, someone comes in with moderate severe disease, uh, give them a pound of uh, triamcinolone first, uh, topical ointment, see how they do. Okay, they don't do well with that. Go to phototherapy. Okay, now they haven't done well with that. Let's go to methotrexate. Okay, now let's go to a biologic. You know, what we really think about is uh, what is that patient's underlying health state, uh, what is their preferences, uh, how much of a burden is their disease for them, and then choosing the right uh, treatment for that patient at that point in time. Great. And uh, um, now that we've reviewed the guidelines, uh, I just wanted to ask Joel also, what are some of the barriers to actually using the guidelines in our daily practice. Yeah, well, I think that's, I mean, it's twofold. I mean, one, there's clinician barriers and then there's patient barriers. I think on the clinician side, uh, psoriatic arthritis can be a very challenging disease to diagnose. Uh, joint complaints are highly prevalent in our patients with psoriasis. Uh, osteoarthritis is very prevalent. Uh, fibromyalgia is very prevalent. So it can be challenging for us to know, does this person truly have psoriatic arthritis or do they really have a mixture of other conditions going on? Uh, the second part is really our patient's perspective. Uh, when patients are seeing me as a dermatologist, their primary concern is their skin, and they're less worried about their joints. Uh, you know, people will find that patients may have dactylitis on their toes. The patient's been ignoring it for a long time. You say, well, why is your toe sort of purple and, and sausage-shaped? And they said, well, it's been like that for a while, doc. I didn't think I'd do anything about that. And so for me, a lot of it is really uh, explaining the prognosis of the disease of psoriatic arthritis. That's a different way of thinking that it can progress. Uh, and therefore, we need uh, better evaluation and potentially need to intervene uh, before they really have permanent disability. Yes. Well, one other aspect of that is that some patients now come with predispositions one way or another. They see so many things on TV nowadays that they are biased one way or another. I need to have this or I never want to get that. And part of the 
job that we have is trying to put everything in perspective to say you have a problem, you have this much skin disease, you may in fact have this much joint disease, what are in fact the best choices for you in that kind of circumstance. That's a great point, David. Um, I think we want to educate uh, patients uh, not only on you know what we think is important, but also actively seek out uh, the information that they're looking at and, uh, um, and hopefully provide them with evidence-based um, uh, evaluation of, of what they're hearing and, and seeing out there. So let's now um, go back and see what our audience said about what's important to them when developing a treatment plan. The question was, what is important to consider before making a treatment selection for Ms. W? So I shall say that for our audience, only four options were displayed. Um, so 33% of, uh, of the audience uh, responded chose A, PSA phenotype, 21% chose B, patient compliance, 21% uh, chose C, treatment guidelines, and 25% chose D, drug risk profile, and uh, there was uh, another option of E which wasn't displayed, which is all of the above. So as you can see, um, our uh, uh, audience have uh, various um, responses here. We really have a sort of even divide among the, among well, the responses here. Well, there, of course, all of the above would have been the answer, but it's very interesting when not given that choice, people seem to break up into quarters for each one because each one had in their own mind that was the other next best option and we can't fault them because all of them are correct Absolutely. you know that they are in fact correct and thinking about all of those factors are what you decide on in choosing agents for uh, patients. So, yeah. so I think in, in effect I would say all of our audience members are correct <laughs> right. for this uh, question. So Joel, uh, let's move on and think about some of the uh, newly approved and emerging agents. Can you talk about some of the newly approved agents that's uh, approved by FDA in the treatment of psoriatic arthritis? Sure. Well, you know, we really are in a golden age of managing uh, chronic inflammatory diseases with uh, almost uh, exponential growth in our treatment options for our patients. And this is important because our patients have uh, these chronic long-term diseases, uh, and oftentimes they need multiple treatment options to control it over a long period of time. Uh, in September 2014, a premolast was approved by the FDA. And what was exciting here is that this is the first new oral medication uh, approved for psoriasis and, and psoriatic arthritis uh, in many, many years, probably decades since we've had a oral medication. And many of our patients really do want uh, a pill for their disease as opposed to an injectable medication for the disease. So it's very patient-centered uh, therapy if you think about that. Uh, the dosing of this medication is typically 30 milligrams twice a day. Uh, but it's important for our uh, colleagues to know that in the beginning, patients will have uh, higher rates of uh, gastrointestinal discomfort, uh, nausea, queasiness, diarrhea, things of that nature. And so we tend to uh, gradually increase the dose over a week or two week period until they get up to the, uh, the regular treatment dose of 30 milligrams uh, twice a day. And most patients will tolerate these symptoms quite well. Very few patients, at least in clinical trials, have needed to stop the drug uh, for those gastrointestinal side effects. And otherwise, people are very encouraged by the safety profile of Premolast. It is a uh, PDE4 inhibitor, uh, immune modulating therapy. Uh, and it's not really felt to be tremendously immunosuppressive. It doesn't seem to have uh, organ toxicities with it. So uh, the FDA label doesn't even recommend any particular monitoring at this point in time. Now, of course, uh, those statements will have to stand the test of time, and we'll see how it performs when it's used in uh, more and more complicated patients over time as well. 
The other thing about Premolas is that it hasn't yet been shown uh, to be a true disease-modifying agent, meaning that we don't know if it will halt progression of joint damage. That's still work that needs to go on. Uh, but certainly it's a very nice option for our patients, especially patients who may be uh, overweight or obese, where about 10% 10 of patients on a Premolas will actually lose a significant amount of body weight. Uh, not related to gastrointestinal symptoms, the mechanism is not well understood, but certainly for a lot of our patients, this could be a much added benefit uh, of being on a medication like this. Yes, uh, I've had patients who are excited about that potential um, effect of the medication. So what about um, some of the other emerging agents in the area of psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis um, that are uh, being developed in the pipeline? What are your thoughts on them and uh, uh, perhaps if you can highlight a few? Yeah, well certainly uh, biologics continue to, to uh, lead the revolution in this area uh, for both skin disease and joint disease. Uh, the IL-17 pathway is increasingly uh, seems to be uh, trying to compete or take over for the uh, TNF pathway. Uh, with many people thinking for the skin disease itself that perhaps IL-17 or IL-23, related cytokine, uh, are true targets of, of, of action in skin disease. Uh, and this is based on the fact that in these clinical trials, uh, doses of IL-17 inhibitors like secukinumab, which was recently approved for skin disease in January, uh, or its related uh, compounds, ixacizumab or dalumab, uh, these have very high efficacies. Uh, 80 to 90 percent of patients get in clear or uh, completely clear their skin disease, uh, previously thought to be uh, unheard of response rates in a chronic condition like this. Um, other mechanisms out there, uh, IL-6 inhibitors are being studied both for skin and joint disease. Of course, uh, JAK inhibition uh, already available, tofacitinib for rheumatoid arthritis, uh, uh, well into phase three programs for joint uh, and skin disease and uh, has some uh, promise there and is an oral medication and again our patients tend to prefer an oral medication. Uh, IL-23 therapies are important as well, many being developed there, highly efficacious biologics. And even pathways that many of us may not be uh, familiar with, uh, things that are uh, antibodies of P-selecting glycoprotein, for example, uh, drugs that have been approved for multiple sclerosis, as it turns out, seem to have some efficacy for psoriasis, also uh, orally available medications. So uh, truly a time of, of great progress in treating these conditions. Yes, absolutely. Um, so David, let's get back to uh, our patient W. We've discussed established treatments, newly approved treatments, and even emerging therapies, and we've also talked about guidelines. But you know, when we're facing a patient uh, who's in front of us, we have to make a decision. So how would you treat Ms. W here? Well, I think I would certainly offer her additional therapy. We are not going to do much with changing her methotrexate dose, even if we went to sub-Q versus just using the 15 milligrams. And I would offer some form of additional therapy, whether it be a TNF. We've heard about a primolast. If she's definitely against injections or infusion, there is now an oral agent that could be possibly effective for her. So certainly you have to at least add that to the list of what you offer for her. If she had more of a sausage digit, I don't think we have enough data to talk about the oral agent being effective. Thereby, once again, I would go towards more of a TNF agent in her. So yeah, her fingers or toes are swollen. I haven't seen her, so I don't know if it's dactylitis or not. But if that would be the case, I would be going more towards the biologic in this person. But she is getting something extra before she leaves the office. Okay, great. 
And Joel, as we're thinking about preparing our patients for biologic agents or other types of immunomodulatory therapy for psoriatic arthritis, what are the things that we should be thinking about? Yeah, well, I think that the term immunomodulatory uh, as clinicians uh, gives us a clue of where we need to be thinking about, especially in taking a good, uh, detailed uh, medical history from the patients to make sure they're prepared uh, to optimize the benefit of the therapies and minimize their risks. And so thinking about immunomodulation, we always worry about infection. Uh, and so it's important to discuss with your patients that had prior infections or exposure to tuberculosis, so they may be prone to these things or had uh, uh, fungal lung infections in the past or things of that nature are important to identify. Uh, and also important to screen patients for subclinical infections. Uh, I, in my own practice, I screen everyone uh, for hepatitis B and hepatitis C as well as for HIV. Uh, and then also uh, we want to screen them for tuberculosis if we're using immune modulatory therapy, uh, either with a blood test, uh, interferon gamma release assay, uh, or a PPD if it's available for you. Uh, and then thinking about the idea of uh, the drugs possibly making people slightly more prone to infection, uh, we have the opportunity to lower their risk of infection through uh, proper uses of vaccines. So a flu shot annually, uh, preferably the, the, sh the shot, not the inhaled vaccine, which is a live vaccine if a patient's on immunosuppressive therapy. Uh, the pneumonia vaccine, uh, both the Pneumovax and the Prevnar vaccine uh, are things that are recommended by CDC in patients who are on chronic immunosuppressive therapies. And so this is something to consider for our patients as well. Uh, hepatitis B is a concern for patients on immunomodulatory therapies. If uh, someone had a latent hepatitis B infection, that could reactivate and cause uh, fulminant liver problems. Uh, and certainly, we want someone to get acutely infected with hepatitis B uh, while they're on an immunomodulatory medication. So, for patients with risk factors, uh, there's a sexually transmitted disease who haven't been vaccinated, uh, something to consider as well. Uh, and just thinking about the patient uh, in other areas, uh, hepatitis, I mean, sorry, uh, HPV vaccine, mm -hmm. uh, human papillomavirus vaccine. Uh, this has been something that's been very effective in reducing risks of cervical cancer. Uh, and therefore, uh, we need to be aware that our patients may not have had these things done. And that's a vaccine that's recommended for women up until age 26, for example. So uh, psoriasis affects people of all ages of the spectrum. And we need to think about these things for our patients. Now, the second part of this coin is really thinking about risk of malignancy. Uh, and a patient's uh, highest risk of having cancer is really the day we see them having a prevalent cancer that has not yet come to medical attention or been diagnosed uh, yet. Uh, and so here we want to think about making sure our patients are up to date with this good old-fashioned age-appropriate medical screening. Uh, so for our patient who's 52 years old who comes into our practice, uh, she may not have had a mammogram in a, a decade, or she may have never had a colonoscopy, for example, things that we would recommend uh, for her. Or maybe a pap smear hasn't been done in, in, in uh, more than three years. And so uh, oftentimes I'll encourage patients to be up to date on these age-appropriate cancer screenings as well, uh, so we can lower their risk of, of having any uh, untoward effects in the near future. Yeah, I think that's a that's a great point with regards to uh, not only making sure they get the proper vaccines, but also they have age-appropriate cancer screening. Now, typically, the responsibility of that falls on the uh, the role of the primary care physician. So, I just want to quickly ask: Do you order both of you? Do you order age-appropriate cancer screening, or do you? refer the patient back to the primary care physician to, to do that part? Well, we have a very uh, intense uh, internal medicine group uh, network in our area. I'm from Washington, D.C., and uh, I rely on the internal medicine physicians to really be doing that kind of screening. Now, of course, if the patient hasn't been to them in quite a while, I encourage them to go. but. Uh, uh, I believe that we are so busy 
that once we start getting into cancer screening too often, then it just dilutes out our ability to really deal with some of these issues. But it's clearly very important. So luckily we have in, in our area the ability of having the internist sort of carry the ball as far as that's concerned. Great. Yeah, well, well, I think the secret of caring for the patient is, is just that, caring for the patient. And I think that, you know, our patients appreciate it when we uh, think about them more than just their skin, but their overall health as well. And so this conversation is part of, uh, you know, having a strong clinical dialogue and relationship with your patient. Uh, certainly as a dermatologist, we're, I'm not in a position to do a colonoscopy. Uh, I'm certainly not going to do a pap smear in my office, but having a dialogue and a conversation uh, leads the patient in that direction. Occasionally, you know, uh, I may be the only doctor taking care of the patient, so I may order a mammogram for convenience sake for the patient uh, if they're eligible for mammography screening uh, and they don't have a primary doctor could order for them. Mm -hmm. uh, but for the most part we want to make sure the patient is involved in, uh, with, a, with a primary care physician who's taking care of these things for them. Terrific. Great. Let's shift gears a bit and talk about the collaboration between dermatologists and rheumatologists and how we can improve patient care. Let's ask our audience one last question. Is it important to consult with a rheumatologist? And you will see the question on your screen uh, right now. And importantly, uh, not only is it important, but also when is it important to, to consult with your rheumatologist? So here are your options. A, weekly positive ANA with no joint symptoms. B, the I hurt all over patient. C, no evidence of inflammation or D, uncertain, uncertain psoriatic arthritis in patients with psoriasis. You can enter your response now. So let's um, give our audience a few seconds there and uh, um, I wanna turn the question back to Joel here in terms of um, who are the high priority patients that you think should be referred to rheumatologists? Yeah, so as I mentioned earlier, a lot of times our patients are seeing us as a, as a dermatologist and they think that we're the ones who are going to take care of all these issues for them and that it's important we educate them of, uh, of where they need to get, uh, you know, uh, team-based care when necessary. Uh, I, I think that, you know, any patient who comes in who has uh, joint complaints that are medically significant to the patient, bothersome to the patient, uh, probably need an evaluation by a subspecialist, especially in disease state where patients are prone to osteoarthritis or related to obesity, for example. Obviously, psoriatic arthritis is a consideration and fibromyalgia seems to be associated with psoriasis as well. Uh, so I think that, you know, any at baseline, a patient who is uh, uncomfortable, not feeling well, uh, we have an opportunity to uh, help them have a better quality of life, better function by relying on our rheumatology uh, experts. Now, patients who have uh, clear inflammation on exam, I mean, we're visually inspecting the skin, and you can see inflammation in some of those pictures David showed earlier uh, in the entheses, uh, in the uh, small digits of the, uh, the hands and toes, for example, dactylitis and things of that nature. Um, so if they clearly have inflammation on exam, uh, if they have uh, morning stiffness that's persisting beyond 20, 30 minutes, uh, these are times where I'm getting more concerned about them having a significant case of psoriatic arthritis. And then, as we mentioned earlier, uh, lab indicators. You know, if they have elevations and markers of systemic inflammation, uh, these are markers that they may progress and have more permanent joint damage, or if they have x-ray films that are abnormal, uh, another uh, marker for uh, patients who have more significant case. And so these are patients who I may uh, spend more time with, you know, really making the case why they need to see another physician uh, in order to manage this problem. 
Great. And how about from a rheumatologist perspective, sure. David, who do you think should be referred to you and other rheumatologists? But just one minute saying how rheumatologists do send to, to dermatologists too. Yes. Every <laughs> once in a while, one of those 20 or 30 percent who don't have skin disease yet show up with joints and lo and behold when we look uh, at their buttocks, if we look at their umbilicus, we find, oh, there's a few flakes, mm -hmm. there's a few changes. So in those circumstances, we appreciate the dermatologist being available to substantiate our suspicion that in fact this patient does have psoriasis. I think the rheumatologist does play a role here. And though the dermatologists are, are doing yeoman's work in regard to taking care of the skin, I don't think you are really comfortable with all the nuances that may be involved with the joint musculoskeletal complaints that these patients have. Particularly, for instance, if they need intraarticular injections, these are things that we do continuously. We use multiple medications on a regular basis. We're monitoring these patients very commonly. And as I mentioned, though you may think it's psoriatic arthritis, I did show on my two tables, you need to keep all those various options together in order to decide what is in fact the appropriate therapy for this patient and make the correct diagnosis. So I do think those individuals who do have joint problems certainly are welcome in our clinics, in our offices to be evaluated to try and get them the best care possible. Great. And uh, what kind of patients do you not want to see in, in your clinic? Because, yeah. you know, we, we, we want to make sure we do a good job in screening, but we're sending you these patients. But we also want feedback as, as dermatologists and possibly as internists and, and other types of pro care providers uh, to really hear from your perspective, eh, maybe these are the patients, you know, not high yield to send to a rheumatologist. Well, these are ones that I wouldn't necessarily send right off the top. And I mean, if you have a positive ANA of 1 to 40, 1 to 80, that's not considered abnormal. And that kind of patient really doesn't need to be seen. As mentioned by Joel, we do see fibromyalgia. At least some rheumatologists see fibromyalgia patients. So I don't want to say that all I heard all over patients are, are not to be sent. But certainly that is a different category of patient than the one who, in fact, has joint disease. And then finally, if there's truly no inflammation in any of the joints, even though they may say I'm sort of aching, that certainly is someone that you may want to hold on to a little bit longer to see, does something develop in this patient? Is it something else going on? And if so if you don't really see them and they're not really saying my joints are killing me, I wouldn't necessarily send them immediately. Okay. Well, David and Joel, thank you so much for a very impactful discussion. Uh, we're going to try to summarize some of the things that we talked about uh, today. So, Joel, let's start out with you. Well, I think one of the key messages here is that we as dermatologists are on the front lines of this disease, psoriatic arthritis. Uh, and when I see a patient with psoriasis, I'm thinking two things. One is I want to identify do they have symptoms of joint disease and potentially psoriatic arthritis? And two is I want to educate my patients so they know what to look for over time. Because for many of our patients, uh, they may develop psoriatic arthritis 5, 10, 20 years later. Uh, and if they know what to look for, they're more likely to get the proper diagnosis and treatment. Uh, people who aren't dermatologists or uh, who are not rheumatologists, when they present with these joint symptoms, it can be very hard for them to understand what psoriatic arthritis may be, and there's a high chance of them not being diagnosed and treated properly. So that's a big part of this as well, not just diagnosing it and detecting it, but educating the patient about what may occur later on. 
Absolutely. David? Well, I think, as I mentioned before, if there's one thing I would ask the dermatologist to do is ask the question, do your joints hurt? And if they do, go into the next levels to find out whether, in fact, there are changes present that make you concerned that they have more than just skin disease, but they, in fact, have joint problems, musculoskeletal problems. And if they do, those are the people who should be sent. And that knowing the different types can also be able to help your patient who's there with psoriasis saying, well, oh, it's just the joint. Well, it may be more than that, that this can, in fact, have great implications for you in the future and that you want. We can't fix that's what's broken. We can take care of things before they're broken, but it's hard to fix them after. So being appropriate in, in the uh, sending the patient is really important for a good outcome. Great. Any last minute? Well, I think that uh, for dermatologists, one of the things we want to be is proactive and, and identify the rheumatologists in our community uh, who are engaged with this disease and who we can work with uh, collaboratively to help our patients uh, get well. Uh, this can be extremely helpful, I think, for our patients and also helpful in triaging as well. That is, all of our practices are oversubscribed uh, and by uh, our, uh, understanding which patients are likely to have you know, really significant disease and need to be seen right away, we can pick up the phone and speak to our colleague and get them in right away. Uh, and other patients who uh, seem like they have more mild disease and they could wait a little bit, uh, we could properly have that patient triage. And then ultimately, uh, co-management is often an issue and being able to have a good relationship with your colleagues, uh, what we know uh, when I'm the one who's prescribing the monitoring and when my colleague's doing that, I think really uh, leads to better outcomes for our patients and, and more enjoyable practice for ourselves as professionals. Yes, well, thank you both. Thank you. So I want to thank our audience, David and Joel, for joining me today. And on behalf of CME Outfitters, I am Dr. April Armstrong, and I hope you are able to incorporate the strategies we have discussed today into improving the care for your patients with psoriatic arthritis. Please stick around for our After the Show segment, which will be starting in approximately two minutes, where we will take all of your questions and discuss our patient case in more detail. You can call us at 1-800-322-3487 or you can email us at questions at cmeoutfitters.com or use the questions tab on your screen and you can also fax us at 614-448-4476. We'll be back in less than two minutes to start addressing some of the questions that we've already received. For a full listing of additional activities and resources in psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis, please visit www.com. Excuse me, please visit www.cmeoutfitters.com. Thank you for joining us, and I hope today's presentation will help you improve the care of your patients.
Welcome to our Welcome to our After the Show program. Uh, we are again joining by Dr. Joel Galfin and Dr. David Bornstein here. So uh, I'm going to take one of the uh, questions from the audience and then we're going to go to uh, actually a uh, live caller. Um, so the first question that um, I'm going to ask is uh, for Dr. Bornstein. Uh, one of our audience members asked, how do I dis differentiate between psoriatic arthritis and fibromyalgia? Well, fibromyalgia is really a central pain syndrome which causes pain above and below the waist. So it has to have components which are associated potentially with tenderness in areas way far away from joints. And these individuals also have difficulty sleeping. They may also show sympathetic nervous system difficulties in that they have uh, irritable bowel syndrome, they have interstitial uh, cystitis symptoms. So they have a broad range of complaints, certainly, uh, but they don't have joint disease. So they may be tender around joints, but they have no swelling or redness and those kinds of things. So it is possible, even though patients are complaining of pain, it is possible to differentiate them if you think back to the examples that I gave of joint changes and joint inflammation versus these individuals who have pain without necessarily having any swelling or inflammation, it is possible to differentiate them. Okay, great. Next, we'll take the caller online, uh, Dr. Oxman from Philadelphia. Yes, and what is the best way to approach a patient who is actually HIV positive? In terms of the management of psoriasis, yes. psoriatic arthritis, or both? Exactly. Who has psoriatic arthritis and is HIV positive. And diabetic and uh, has inherited all that. Yes, yeah, so this is a real challenging case, patient who has uh, HIV disease uh, and psoriatic arthritis and psoriasis. So a couple of things to think about first. Uh, one is HIV could cause a variety of arthropathies in addition to psoriatic arthritis, so we have to distinguish those two issues. Uh, the second question really is, is their HIV management optimized? And so uh, patients can often come in with a flare of psoriasis as really the, the sign that they have HIV infection or uh, advancing HIV infection leading to, uh, to AIDS. And so the first thing is, is, is their uh, management of HIV disease adequate? Uh, and many of the studies show that patients, when they go on protease inhibitors, for example, and their viral level uh, goes down and their T cells count start going back up, their skin will clear almost completely. Uh, in some cases, maybe their joints will uh, improve as well. Now, if the patient's HIV disease is managed quite well uh, and they have, uh, you know, very bad skin disease and very bad joint disease, then we're in a tricky situation. Uh, you know, things like methotrexate, at least in my community, uh, we reasonably feel comfortable doing uh, with some caution. Uh, and rarely in the selected patient whose HIV disease is very, very well managed, uh, preserved CD4 count uh, and viral level that's undetectable, we may consider uh, biologic agents uh, with careful uh, observation. And wonder what your perspective would be on how to manage these tough cases. We try to get away with methotrexate alone if we can. Mm -hmm. As once again that they do have control of their HIV disease, which certainly the infectious disease expert or whatever is maximizing to try to keep the counts where they're supposed to be. But we try to really maximize uh, methotrexate as best as possible and really leave biologics for the really rare 
circumstances as much as possible. Okay. And, and often as dermatologists, we could really help uh, you know, maximize the clearance of the skin disease with things like ultraviolet light phototherapies. So if the methotrexate is controlling the joint symptoms uh, or NSAIDs are able to control it without evidence of joint progression, uh, then we have options that are uh, skin-directed therapies that uh, are not concerned for systemic uh, immunocompromisation. Okay, great. Uh, so I have an interesting question here. I'm going to direct it to Dr. Gelfand. Um, so this is a, a practitioner who asks, if you have a patient with psoriasis who warrant systemic treatment and you feel that they're, it's actually helping their psoriatic arthritis quite a bit, is it okay to do nothing more in terms of a workup for their psoriatic arthritis mm. um, or uh, wait to refer to rheumatology until they develop some form of psoriatic arthritis? Yeah, this, this is a great question. So and this happens a lot in my practice where I have a patient who comes in, uh, really their skin disease is a dominating uh, situation here. Uh, they have symptoms that are concerning for psoriatic arthritis. I may start them on methotrexate or I may put them on a uh, systemic biologic like a TNF inhibitor or, or an IL-1223 inhibitor or things of that nature. And the patient comes back and says, not only is my skin clear, but I haven't felt this good in years. I feel 10 years younger. Uh, I get out of bed quicker in the morning, and, and these are all really great parts of treating this disease. Uh, you know, in my own practice, I tend to be on the conservative side, uh, and so I do like to have them uh, we seen once by a rheumatologist who then take a look at the patient and say, yeah, uh, this patient's doing well, and, and this is the type of monitoring I might do in terms of making sure there's no signs that joints are uh, still progressing, because we may be improving their symptoms, but really the question is underlying, uh, are we modifying the uh, natural history of the disease, are we preventing them from developing joint damage. And so even if a patient is doing well on a systemic uh, drug, if they have joint symptoms, I think it's uh, worth a consultation with my colleagues in rheumatology. Okay. I think one of the issues is whether the patient with psoriasis is experiencing fatigue. Mm -hmm. And is it fatigue that's the predominant factor that's the extra one versus necessarily having a specific joint? One of the things that I've found with our rheumatoid arthritis patients is that the fatigue component, which was very hard to measure, is some of the, the part of their disease that they think really gets better with the biologic. And sometimes that may be occurring in some of the psoriasis patients as well, that the fatigue component is there, they may feel better, and they may be on the brink of having joint disease. So it's something to just keep in mind that uh, they may have multiple complaints and that the therapies may be working on a variety of different issues for them. Yeah, okay. and I think we have to realize also our patients, uh, we're gonna see them through the continuum of their disease. And so mm -hmm. they may be doing well today, uh, but a lot of our drugs lose efficacy over time and uh, they may have uh, acute issues with their joints. And so having a relationship with a rheumatologist uh, when things are going well is a good place yeah, to start mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to waiting when there's a crisis. Yeah. So the next question uh, is going to be uh, posed to Dr. Borenstein uh, as two parts. Number one is how long can patients uh, be on a biologic? And number two is how long do we wait for a response for a patient on a biologic such as a TNF uh, uh, inhibitor therapy before we consider adding another therapy or switching to another class? Well, I'll also ask my dermatology colleagues their, their perspective of this as well. I think it depends certainly to a certain degree on the drug. They have different half-lives so that one needs to at least give the drug a chance to work. If you've only given two doses and you haven't decided whether it's worked, well that may not be the best time to decide. So I'm usually looking at a six-month period in general, I think is a reasonable one. So you've had at least a few doses 
of the agent, whatever it might be, to see if the patient is responding. And at that point, if they're not, then of course I will switch to a different one and see whether they can respond at that point. And sometimes, it, and it, you would think that maybe difference between fusion protein versus versus by, uh, an, an, uh, antibody would be specific and you could determine. That's not the case. We don't have comparative effectiveness studies to really be able to talk about that. So I think it is still trial and error, but you should at least give the drug a chance. And that's talking about the joints. I would suspect it's the same yeah, for the skin as well. I think well. the timeline's a little different in the skin. So uh, especially some of our newer therapies, like uh, the IL-17 medications, mm -hmm. secukinumab being the one recently approved by the FDA, uh, you see substantial numbers of patients getting clear, almost clear within four weeks. Uh, so oftentimes I'll see those patients back within four weeks and uh, at least half of them are going to be pretty close to clear within that short period of time. Uh, for our other biologic agents, TNF inhibitors, IL-12-23 inhibitors, uh, or even our traditional medications like methotrexate, you know, two to three months they should be having a pretty decent response or be moving in the right direction. If they're not, uh, they're not achieving at least a half 50% improvement in their disease, I may start thinking about this may not be the right agent for this patient. Um, and so those are important things to consider, I would say. Now, if a patient has failed, truly failed, a TNF inhibitor for the skin, there is some pretty good observational data from Europe showing that they are much more likely to do well on a uh, IL-12-23 inhibitor than if I go to a secondary, uh, a second trial of a TNF. Uh, there's a different story if a patient was on a TNF inhibitor and did well at first and lost response, those patients seem to do well if we switch them to another TNF inhibitor. Uh, so it really does depend on whether they are primary failure to drug or secondary failure. Yes, um, I, I think that's very important. And also what you had said earlier, Joel, about the timing in terms of when you start to first see response and the median timing mm -hmm. of the population seeing response, and also also where the drug peaks in terms of its performance. So, so really looking at the response curve and see where that peaks for the majority of the population, I think may be a good uh, point to determine when you should uh, consider um, switching to another therapy. Well, the other reality is that we certainly have insurance companies that are having some impact on our choices and sometimes we have to go through some first and others so the time frame of what we would like on a scientific basis versus a very practical basis may not coincide absolutely but certainly we should be basing our choices on what the biology is and what makes most sense for the patient. Okay so um, the questions are coming in like flood so mm -hmm. I may not be able to take everyone's question, but we're going to try to cover as much as possible. Uh, so I just want to address this one uh, very quickly. The question is, I'm a rheumatologist, and treat to target is our goal in RA. How does that translate to derms and psoriatic arthritis? Um, I, I would say that you know we have a long way to go. As you can see, number one, we're trying to still understand the disease, how to screen for the disease, and then uh, we're thinking about management. But obviously, the, the rheumatologists are the experts for for that, um, and there are literature on you know how to achieve minimal disease uh, activity uh, mm -hmm. for PSA. So maybe uh, David, can you give us some thoughts well, on that? It's the holy grail. I I would love to say that we continue to try to find uh, drugs that put patients in a low disease activity state. I don't like calling remissions and things of that sort 
I prefer low disease activity state. And that's certainly where we would like them to be. I think the reality is there is a patient on the other end of the receiving of the therapy. And you have to, once again, balance the pluses and minuses of these interventions with their concerns. And yes, you could continue to add therapies or change therapies, but will you get an added benefit? And I think theoretically, treat to target is great, that we shouldn't stop too soon, but at the same time we have to be thoughtful about what is a good response in a patient and taking in all these various factors. So yeah. I think it's something that we'll look at for as long as we practice. Definitely a hot topic in an area where I think we're really trying to get towards better outcomes for our patients with these approaches. And there is some recent data emerging in this area in psoriatic arthritis, uh, approaches of treating a target for PSA versus a usual care approach. And these randomized controlled trials uh, tend to show uh, better outcomes in terms of the joint symptoms, uh, more likely to uh, reach an ACR20, for example, um, but higher rates of uh, intolerance or side effects in patients being treated more aggressively as well. So it is uh, a trade-off in that balance we need to think about with our patients uh, and what their preferences are and what they're willing to tolerate. From the skin point of view, you know, there was a time when we thought if I could get your psoriasis half cleared, that would be really good. Uh, if I get your psoriasis 75% cleared, that would be really good. But we know our patients want to be clear. They want to be completely clear of their skin disease uh, and truly be in remission from it. And so increasingly, uh, that is a target we may be aiming for, even if it's not achievable uh, in all of our patients. It's certainly something we would aspire to. Okay. Terrific. Um, so uh, the next set of questions has, has to do with actually specific agents. Mm -hmm. um, so I will start by tackling the first one. The question is, is it Premalat as efficacious as other biologics? Can you talk about the pathway and how it works in more detail, please? Uh, so I'm going to start with just talking about the pathway of how Premalast works. Um, so Premalast is a PDE4 inhibitor, so it uh, inhibits phosphodiesterase 4, uh, which is uh, this enzyme that converts cyclic AMP to AMP. So as a result of the PDE4 inhibition, you get an increase in cyclic AMP um, as a result that stimulates PKA. Um, and following that, essentially, you have a decrease in the NF-kappa-B pathway and an increased uh, activity in the anti-inflammatory pathway, such as the CREB pathway. Um, so that's our understanding of how roughly the mechanism works. Uh, there's no head-to-head -head study currently between a premolast and uh, biologic agents, uh, but in placebo-controlled studies uh, in psoriasis, and, and I'll have the rest of you can comment on psoriatic arthritis, that have shown that in, in their pivotal trials uh, that um, at week 12, the, um, uh, the response is about 33% uh, of patients um, who have a achieved uh, at least 75 percent uh, improvement uh, in their psoriasis. And I just wanted to uh, throw the question back at our experts here in terms of psoriatic arthritis. Um, what do you, how do you, how well, well do you think it works and so I forth. think it's, it's still as mentioned, it's a new, t a new agent. It's the latest one to have been approved. And I think what is shown in clinical trials, you have to prove in the real world. And so certainly uh, primalase does help uh, joint disease, but as mentioned by Joel previously, we have to see what its long-term benefits are over time. And so will it in fact slow disease progression? Will it change joints, ACR20s, 50s, 70s? Certainly it had enough to pass FDA for approval. So I do think it is a useful agent. I think it takes a little longer to work but when it does work, people do notice it, but we haven't had 
the other part of the question you asked, how long have we used uh, TNFs or biologics? 15, 20 years. So we're just starting with a new agent relatively soon. So mm -hmm. we still have more to learn about it. But that's sort and of where it's fitting right now. And, and just to press on that a little bit more for PSA, just because there are a few questions on this, how do you fit a new agent such as a Premalast in the current armamentarium of a treatment for PSA? Right now, I have a few patients who've had more toxicities with TNFs. So they have psoriatic arthritis, so I'm starting them on a primalast. So okay. I'm fitting it in there as some individuals who may have a slightly increased toxicity profile. And so I'm using it here to see if I can slip it in so that I can get the patient on something that's more than just the DMARC, but in fact may not have the same toxicity profile mm -hmm. as these other agents. And Joel, if you can comment on uh, how do you approach a premolas and where does it fit in your treatment paradigm for, for psoriasis? And then afterwards, we also have questions regarding secukinumab, which was approved also for psoriasis. So how, how does that fit into your current treatment paradigm for psoriasis patients? Yeah, so a premolas is clearly a major advantage for us is oral availability. Our, many of our patients really prefer a pill. The concept of having to do an injection, as simple as it may be, and, and really not too uncomfortable to do, patients prefer a pill uh, versus an injectable medication, and that's a nice advantage. Uh, and the weight loss uh, side effect is something we could, uh, we could uh, take advantage of for patients who are overweight or obese, uh, and it's a nice situation in those patients. Apremolast uh, is a more modest efficacy drug. Uh, as you mentioned, the POSI 75 rates are somewhere around 30% clearance rates compared to uh, our high efficacy TNF inhibitors like adalimumab, which is around uh, 60 to 70% clearance rates or our newer uh, IL-17 drugs which are in the 80% clearance rates. So the biologics clearly have major efficacy advantages there uh, relative to, uh, to this new uh, medication. Uh, and then the second question, I guess, was regarding secukinumab. Yes, uh, yeah, and how, how do you incorporate uh, secukinumab in your treatment paradigm? Right, yeah. So, uh, you know, there's an old line by uh, William Ozor who said, uh, don't be the last, to, uh, you may not want to be the first person to prescribe a brand new drug, but you certainly won't be the last one to prescribe an old drug, okay? So we're making major progress here. Uh, secukinumab is a new kid in the block here, and it has uh, compelling advantages uh, in head-to-head -head trials uh, versus uh, drugs like ustekinumab. It shows more rapid onset of action, it shows that they're more likely to become clear or almost clear. Uh, and so it has efficacy advantages. Um, it also uh, does not make multiple sclerosis worse. Uh, in some early phase two trials, drugs in this class may have some benefit. And so for many of our patients who have a family history of MS or they have comorbid MS, we would stay away from TNF inhibitors and this new class of drugs, IL-17s, could be helpful. Uh, for other patients who have uh, inflammatory bowel disease, uh, this class of medication can aggravate inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, and so those would be people to steer away. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, it's, it's certainly a major advance in our armamentarium for people with psoriasis, uh, high efficacy, rapid onset drug. Uh, and its question will be, you know, will it stand the test of time the way TNF inhibitors have stood the test of time? And increasingly used Kinumab, which has been around for four or five years and has very good long-term safety data as well. Mm -hmm. Yes, so I think um, in the in the coming era or the era that we're living right now, really comparative effectiveness uh, uh, data is very important as we try to decide among the, the now uh, various agents that we have uh, for psoriasis and, and psoriatic arthritis. Uh, now, let's not forget about our established agents. So we have a question from our audience um, that asks, do drugs such as TNF inhibitors, such as etanercept or adalimumab, actually delay disease progression or halt progression of psoriatic arthritis. Oh boy, 
Well, how many hours do we have for that one? <laughs> um, I think, once again, we do not have data to absolutely show that disease progression is halted. I think that's just honest. I think even because there's so many different forms of disease with psoriatic arthritis as we've gone through this, this program, you have to choose and pick which one are you going to follow, which one are your parameters that you will in fact decide are the ones to say yes we have no progression of disease. Do, do I believe that we are in fact affecting the illness? Yes we are. Do we have changes that show that joint inflammation, swelling, and function is improved? Yes, we do. But the long-term benefits to be able to show over 10 or 20 years that a drug has been able to stop what would otherwise been progressive, I think we still have to prove. I don't think we have the long-term evidence to show that. I don't think the drugs have been around long enough. In short-term studies, certainly they have but will they be true 10, 20 years later? So I think hopefully they will, but I don't, I, don't, I don't tell my patients this will absolutely stop your disease. We need to watch and monitor carefully and make sure that is happening. Yeah, I think that it's part of this is also not just thinking about the joints, but their, uh, the, the overall burden of comorbidity over time. You know, these drugs, uh, especially our traditional drugs, they lower the risk of things like cardiovascular disease, which is a major problem in our patients who have moderate severe psoriasis or have uh, active inflammatory psoriatic arthritis, uh, where cardiovascular mortality is increased in these patients. Uh, they actually die about five years younger than they should based on the risk factors for mortalities. This is part of uh, the spectrum of psoriatic disease, if you will. And, uh, you know, lots of good observations data now from meta-analyses recently published in the Annals of Rheumatic Disease showing uh, fairly significant cardioprotective effects of things like methotrexate uh, and TNF inhibitors. Uh, these are observational studies, so uh, we, can, we can assume causality here because these aren't placebo-controlled trials, but certainly pointing in the right direction. And right now, the uh, NIH is conducting a very large pivotal trial on people without inflammatory disease. They just have high risk for cardiovascular events, and they're taking methotrexate versus placebo to see if they'll lower the risk of heart disease. And this study may really change the way we think about the risk and benefit of treating psoriasis. That not only can I improve your skin and help your joints feel better, but lower your risk of heart disease over time would be a major uh, benefit of these therapies. Great. Um, so we have a question regarding guidelines that have been presented. And the comment was that, you know, the guidelines doesn't really incorporate um, a lot of the newer agents and there's a sentiment that they mm -hmm. may be a little bit out of date. Mm -hmm. So the question is, you know, um, is there going to be an update for these guidelines? Mm -hmm. And I'm going to comment on from the GRAPA side and then maybe Dr. Bornstein, you can talk about uh, any uh, information from the ULAR side. So, so. GRAPA, which we had uh, mentioned earlier in the presentation, is in the process of updating the treatment guidelines uh, and hopefully will incorporate some of the newer agents. Uh, I, I do want to mention that oftentimes uh, incorporating newer agents with, um, with less data in terms of uh, long-term safety data is oftentimes one of the concerns for people uh, on these guideline committees. Uh, making a recommendation without knowing the long-term risks uh, is something that often that they have to consider. So, so ideally we would have um, guidelines updated very frequently, but that's one of the considerations that could delay the, the publication uh, of these guidelines. Uh, any thoughts on ULAR guidelines when, when they're going to be updated? Well, they just did 12 
and to do guidelines takes lots of money. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. Lots of money. It isn't just oh a bunch of uh, females and males sitting in the room deciding oh this is you have to do literature searches and all the rest. So the answer is they will be as I know that the ACR is constantly thinking about updating guidelines on a regular basis, but they are expensive. So I suspect that within a reasonable amount of time there will be incorporation of these newer agents. Now that there are new agents, for a while there weren't. Now there is a flood of them that pushes the process further along. But as to the date when they will appear, I couldn't predict. But they are certainly on the radar screen, that's for okay. sure. And then I'm going to go to um, uh, one of the last questions uh, from a dermatologist who says, I'm a very busy dermatologist. I wonder if you use physician extenders such as NPMPA in your practice, and how do you integrate them um, and use them for chronic disease management? Um, I'll shift so, it to the dermatologist yeah. first. So I, I think this is an, an area where certainly uh, physician extenders can be very helpful to us as, as, uh, as the uh, overseeing physician in, in the process. Uh, you know, when a patient is doing well uh, on these drugs, uh, then the plane is in the air and it's usually smooth sailing. And so, to me, I think uh, the, the complicated aspects are really uh, you know, making sure the diagnosis is correct, making sure they have psoriasis, for example, there's a differential diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Could it be uh, subacutaneous lupus? Could it be mycosis fungoides? And we see these misdiagnoses from time to time. Uh, and then selecting the right drug for the patient based on their preferences and their uh, underlying health issues. Uh, but they're doing well, then the monitoring's fairly straightforward, and oftentimes it's a great place uh, for the physician extenders to spend uh, more time doing a follow-up with the patient and then seeing uh, me as a dermatologist uh, periodically when they need to uh, or if they're having some problems with their treatment or, resp or response issues. Great. Um, and Dr. Bornstein, uh, if you could very quickly comment in about 30 seconds, the role of ultrasound for monitoring PSA. <laughs> Well, I think that's a whole separate topic. Yes, ultrasound has become a great tool to, in fact, follow the amount of inflammation that are in these joints. It is not simple. It takes some training. But we are becoming increasingly aware of the fact that certainly Doppler with uh, ultrasound is able to identify those individuals who may have hidden inflammation and where you think they're controlled. In fact, they may not be on a synovial level. So it is something that is certainly being worked on, wave of the future in, in the way that ultrasound will be used to monitor patients over time. Great. And I'm going to end our session on the comment that Ashley has been uh, uh, put forward. And I'm going to quote this audience member. I'm a rheumatologist, and my biggest frustration is that so many of the patients that were referred to me have suffered needlessly. And I wish that their primary care provider or their derm would have been more aggressive with either treatment or referral because I cannot reverse the damage of their disease. So I'm going to end on that particular comment, and I want to thank our audience for all your great questions. Uh, I'm sorry we weren't able to get to all of them because there were so many of them, um, but I wanted to encourage you to go to www.cmeoutfitters.com for more information. Again, my name is Dr. April Armstrong, and thank you so much for joining us today.